Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. This episode of the SickCast is from a live webinar that originally aired on September 25th, 2021. Thank you for joining today's webinar hosted by the Sick Research Institute. This webinar will begin with a 40-minute moderated discussion, after which we will have 20 to 40 minutes of Q&A from the audience. So please be sure to drop your questions in the chat box and be sure to include your name and city. Now I'd like to introduce you to today's panelist. Harinder Singh serves as the Senior Fellow Research and Policy at the Sikh Research Institute. He's a widely respected educator and thinker who is deeply in love with one force, the one the oneness that radiates in all. He co-founded the Sikh Research Institute and the Punjab Digital Library, organized the Free Akaltak Movement, and envisioned Gore and Singh Academy. Harinder Singh holds a BS in Aerospace Engineering, an MS in Engineering Management, an MPhil in Guru Granth Sahib, and a Diploma in Persian Language. His current focus is on availing the message of the Guru Granth Sahib to global populations and to develop in developing critical thinking in Sikh institutions. He currently resides in the United States with his wife and two children. So, yeah, again, thank you everyone for joining us. Um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're joining us from. So just a brief overview of what will go on in today's conversation. I think it will be a busy one. Um, so in today's conversation, three Gs, Guru, Grant, Gurgaddi, we'll dive deep into the ideas of what Guru is, Gurgaddi, what it means, uh, and thinking about the eternal co-guruship and how that came about um, to the Granth and the Panth. Uh, and we do this as within a month of this conversation are the first Prakash of Guru Granth Sahib and its Gurgaddi and the Gurgaddi Prabhs of Guru Nanak uh, 2, 4, 5, and 8. So Guru Angad Dev, Guru Ramdas, Guru Arjun Dev, and Guru Harkrishan. And I feel like this is yeah, a lot of a lot of things that we're going to be delving deep into, but not to worry. Um, that's kind of what we'll be unpacking, uh, and what the relevance of all of this is to present day or contemporary six. What it means, um, yeah, what these terms mean, how it's still relevant to us. We'll slowly unpack this together. I'm excited to approach this conversation as a learner who can ask some of those questions maybe that have been deemed off limits or maybe the ones that you're not supposed to ask, but kind of the ones that percolate in the back of our minds. Uh, and I welcome everyone joining today to ask those questions as well. So in starting our conversation and unpacking what maybe we've termed the three Gs, I think it's helpful to start with meanings or definitions. So to start us off today, what or who is a guru? Uh, guru Fateh and greetings of the day, everyone. Um, you know, the word guru, we need to really, uh, Manvinder, as soon as you asked that, and we have had previous conversations on this, the word is very packed. And even among the scholars, there is no final agreement as to what the term guru means in its original form. So I'm going to give you two, three different things to think about and uh, for the audience as well. Look, one of the uh, understandings of the word guru is that this means somebody 
I'm going to say there's a noun and the adjective element. So the noun element is somebody who is imparting knowledge. It comes from the idea of gyan or gyanan, which essentially has to do with knowledge. Knowledge could be of any kind, but generally speaking, it implies with knowledge is of what we now call spiritualities or religions or philosophies and mysticisms, things of that nature. The, when we look, this, uh, look at this term from an adjective angle, it comes from an idea that somebody who is heavy, heavy in terms of imparting the knowledge. So somebody who's gotten to a particular levels of understanding, so particular levels of experiences, that's how it gets utilized. But one of the Upanishadic explanation, which has uh, entered many uh, uh, sort of explanations in the world is that Gu means darkness and Ru means light. Mm. So entity who takes you from darkness to light. When you interpret that, that means from ignorance to enlightenment. So those are the sort of two most basic understandings of this in the traditions of, I'll call it ontology, whether you invoke them from Sanskrit or their modern forms in Punjabi or in uh, Indic traditions of what we you know, generally call Hinduism and then also in Jainism and Buddhism and Sikhi and things of that nature. That's, it's, it revolves around those two ideas, that there's an entity which is giving enlightenment and this enlightenment is happening in you know, at a deeper level, and it, and the one who is providing that enlightenment ha, is heavy with it, which means carries a lot with it. Mm-hmm. That was very helpful. I think I, the aspect around the heaviness and the imparting that wasn't something that I always immediately think of when I think of the term gurus. I think that was helpful in my understanding. Um, so I'm interested in the notion of the guru personality as we might sometimes understand it, in that. Once um, they become guru, everything else becomes secondary. However, I understand that this is different from renunciance, which we might associate with Buddhism, where um, there's a renouncing or a rejecting of the material world. But I understand that this looks different in Sikhi. So what does this primacy of becoming guru look like in the Sikh context? So even before we can talk about what does it mean to become a guru in sixth sense? We need to talk about what does the guru mean in the sixth sense, right? Mm-hmm. Because the becoming become is becomes a destination then. Look, so you know, in, in Sikhi, we take those two elements which I was describing, and then we apply what does the text, which popularly Guru Granth Sahib is called now, right? What does the Shabad say? What does the wisdom within Guru Granth Sahib say? And one differentiating factor from those explanations, rather either milestone or the next level for six is that the guru does not make mistakes. Guru is infallible. In fact, uh, the exactness of that in that many emphatic terms is written like that. It says, learn under sabko guru karta. That everyone makes mistakes. Everyone is fallible with the exception of guru and creator. Guru and kartar. Kartar is creator. So this idea of infallibility is very, very big uh, within Sikh tradition. And this is why the word guru is not in a generic teacher, master, spiritual master, or even prophet sense. And it's not somebody who's just imparting these knowledges in a very centered or heavy way, but somebody who is not just excellent, but perfect. So that connotation and how does one become a guru becomes a question, right? Well, we... Uh, we use the word for personalities like Guru Nanak. That's the title we provide. In, in your introduction, you said 
uh, in Guru, for Guru Granth Sahib, we have used it. You also mentioned the four gurus whose Gurkhadis are within this month. So the term is getting invoked for personalities there. And the only way I can answer that in a somewhat emphatic way is when Guru Nanak was asked, who is this guru? We have to start there. And he says, my guru is, when he says, Sabad guru, that Shabad is the guru, which we now call Shabad or Sabad in original or Sabda, if you're following the transcreations of things and how it gets transcribed. So look, if Sabad is the guru, we have to understand what Sabad is. We have to understand what is this personality of Guru Nanak then. And the personality of Guru Nanak was imparting the Shabad. So we called Guru Nanak that. And when the next personality did that, we honorifically titled them as Guru Angat. So the personality, when it is not just mastered it for the self in Sikh tradition, or not the personality which left the world, that now they are going to become renunciates, which have happened in other traditions as you invoked. And in fact, some Punjabi Sikhs or Indian traditions still practice that. But in the line of Guru Nanak's, that really becomes that you are not leaving the world. You have been authoritatively given this ability to mm -hmm. impart Shabbat to everyone, to the humanity. Uh, for those who choose to learn from you, that you are the one who is next in line to do this. So the Guru personalities didn't leave the world. They actually stayed in the world. They dealt with all the ugliness, all the bloodiness, all the messiness, as well as full participation in life, as well as full participation in families, in politics, and economics. And that kind of guru leadership is very unique to Sikhi. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, so I feel like we're getting an understanding of what guru at large, maybe historically, um, meant, and maybe what contemporarily, like, academics think of. Guru, we've maybe, yeah, we've thought about what it, uh, what it looks like in the Sikh context and how it might differ from other traditions. And I'm thinking about the contemporary context. Um, so in my neck of the woods, in my corner of the internet, I think various people get referred to as gurus. Um, so I'm thinking most popularly folks on like YouTube who might be beauty gurus. So when I first like saw this word pop up, I was so like confused, both because in my like everyday life, guru was being used in reference to Sikhi, but now this like beauty guru was popping up. And then guru was also like, it was used in all of these different contexts that didn't make sense to me. Uh, for me, it was like used in a way um, for someone who was particularly skilled at something, which kind of... I can understand how someone might make that leap. But as North Americans and Western Europeans maybe start borrowing and adapting practices and terms that those in so-called Eastern countries uh, or the global South have been using for centuries, how has the word guru been co-opted? And what are the implications of this co-opting? Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, that forewarning of a sword or that vigilance of a sword which you are alluding to there is an element of it which I want to say is outside of that, that this term is old. This term is not unique to Sikhi or the Sikh texts of Guru Granth Sahib included. Um, so we must understand where we started, that this is a term used in generic sense as well now, but it had a specific area of imparting knowledges. So the word, you know, the, the language travels. Uh, there, are, there are analytic languages which do not allow the words to enter, like Sanskrit and Latin, but there are more common languages, including Punjabi and English, 
which do allow other language words, imports to enter. So when the word has entered the global vocabulary, a more commercial English vocabulary, if I may call it, it does mean some sort of an expert. You know, we say IT guru or a Wall Street guru, or as you said, a beauty guru, you know that. So it's being used in that expert sense. As Sikhs and those who are aspiring to become the Sikh of the guru in the context of Sikhi, as well as those who are studying Sikhs and Sikhitos, they need to understand this is not an expert here. You can have many experts. This is not about uh, individuals who have more knowledges. In Sikh tradition, it is very much about the one who is who has experienced the divine because Guru Granth Sahib says so. That in the, for example, the line is, Sat Puruk Janya Sat Gurtiska now. That the one who has the experience of the eternal being, consider that one to be the eternal guru. So this is where the Shabad for all times has been the guru for the six. It will remain the guru of the six. And the ones who initially taught us that in the personalities of Guru Nanak through Guru Gobind Singh were also called the gurus because we only learned about this paradigm from 10 of them. Yeah, I think that those differences are important to tease out and think about. Um, and it's it's not just a, uh, a co-opting maybe of folks in the so-called West, but I know it happens among Indians and within Sikhs as well, these like different usages of the term guru. I'm thinking about the politicization of the term guru, where people add Satguru or Sadguru, as per our conversation earlier, to their names. Um, in the world today, there is this relationship between the spiritual and the political worlds in which this does happen, where guru is maybe used in other capacities. I'm wondering, why does this happen uh, and what are the implications? Yeah, this is the part when it's done in an organized way, it mm. is done in the vicinity of Sikhi or within the Sikh fold, we definitely have to be very vigilant because there what's being said is they are next in line. They are equal to or better than. They are the next versions or avatars, you know, as we might call them today. So, yeah, I mean, people, I mean, I've had interactions of individuals like that uh, where some of them are titled Sadhgurus themselves, like, you know, I, I, I mentioned this from a learning angle. What does it mean when a university in Amritsar called Guru Nanak Dev University has a particular department chair called Sadhguru Jagjit Singh chair? So this is where it's in the vicinity of Sikhi. What is the interaction of Nam Taris and Nanak Sariyas and somewhat from Radha Swamis when they are using this term? So we have to be very careful. They're using it in correlation to Sikhs. There is something about the successions, which will be your next uh, section of discussion as well. But they're also basically saying, we belong to that school too, because we look like you, we sort of use the text like you, but we have our own thing and we are the newest thing. So that's the politics of it. Uh, there is an Indic politics, you know, uh, Isha Foundation's head uh, who speaks uh, decent English has been talking about this as a Sadhguru, that he's... So these adjectives get used in front of the word guru and they become sometimes numerals as well. Sometimes you'll say you'll say one, 108 or 1008 implying this many virtues of the divine have been brought into this particular individuals. Mm -hmm. That is the marketization. That is the commercialization that actually at the highest level is the politicization. When it is in the vicinity of Sikh fold or in concentration with the Sikh fold, uh, especially within the larger Indian culture.
Mm-hmm. I think. We must be very vigilant with this because uh, it does confuse, like you said, right? Somebody sitting here, you know, in uh, Ontario or New York, anywhere else in the world, for that matter, if you ask me, it could be Ludhiana now. They're like, well, there are gurus are like dimes a dozen now <laughs> in the world. So when 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 we are saying, Sikh Research Institute is saying it in its mission statement, what do they really mean? That's the question we should be asking. Mm-hmm. And when it is being used by uh, in, in, a, in a cultural and political context, what do they really mean? And why are they saying it when it comes to either defining themselves against mainstream Sikhi or as defined by the Sikh gurus? So I think those are the questions we definitely should be raising for our self-learning as well as vigilance towards uh, um, sort of a marginalization of Sikh ethos. Mm-hmm. I think you've parsed out like what, why context matters, why purpose matters, and what happens when, um, yeah, the term guru is used in a Sikh context or in an analogous Sikh context, context for a specific purpose, um, and what, yeah, what being vigilant in that in that space looks like. Um, so, kind of as you alluded, moving into our our second G Gurgadi, before we started or before I started preparing for this conversation, I had a very, um, very, not a a wide understanding of what the term Gurgadi means. I think I thought it meant mostly the passing down of the guruship only to the Guru Granth Sahib. However, uh, this isn't the case. It has a much wider meaning. So what is Gurgadi? Yeah, I mean, Gurgadi in a generic sense, if you look at the spiritual traditions of the world, as well as the political tradition of the world, Gaddi is like a seat, a seat of authority, a throne, depending on which vocabulary you're using, six use both. And we apply it in both ways because we are many, many people. To us, spirituality and politics are built in together. We had that conversation a couple of months ago uh, with Jasleen as well, where we put out that report, right? So Gaddi is who occupies that seat or throne. Gurgaddi in the sixth sense will become who occupies that seat of authority when it comes to saying definitively what uh, particular take on Sikhi is, whether it is the issue affecting Sikhs or the issue affecting the globe, not just India. We need to get out of that because yes, we are concentrated in India, 80% still live in Indian Punjab, but seat is a seat of authority, which means this is how they give their perspective. Uh, So religious traditions have this, political traditions have this. In Sikh tradition, it definitely exists as well. And from day one, it has been announced very publicly and it has been challenged very publicly. We must understand that because this is the spirituality and politics coming together for Sikhs again. And it has always been like this. So when Guru Nanak decided to say, you know, here are the great Sikhs at the time, Pai Gurdas records them. He gives their name. He even tells them where they're from. With Sangat, uh, they are part of the leaders of, right, or representatives of. But then there comes a point where an individual, uh, an excellent Sikh, among other excellent Sikhs, named Pailana, is enthroned or Gurgaddi is given and he becomes Guru Angad. So Gurgaddi then becomes an idea of not just that yourself realize yourself, but your responsibility is now to transform the masses. And I'm using that phrase because in Guru Granth Sahib it says so, because that is an authoritative text, and we'll talk about it a little later, where it says that uh, it is not enough that you have the experience of the eternal. Now you're going to 
facilitate that experience for all the seekers. Mm-hmm. Seekers, not forcing it on others, but those who are looking for the way. You will be teaching that way. You will be facilitating that way. So Guru Angad becomes that. Guru Angad is teaching that way and teaching that way in Sikhi is that you also have tough conversations with heads of the state, just like Guru Nanak had that with Babur. Guru Angad had it with Humayu. Guru Angad, uh, just like Guru Nanak is starting this idea of Shabad and utilizing the letters, what we now call Gurmukhi, Guru Angad is taking them and organizing them into script. So I want to go beyond just the spiritual element of imparting of knowledge or the deeper knowledge, but it's also creating economic systems. They both founded a city. They both had confrontations with the Mughal emperors of the time while they are developing these communities and Sangats, a community of seekers. So that part is really, really important. Gurgaddi is a way of the world. Gurgaddis are challenged. There are wars over them. Sometimes there are just frictions, but sometimes there are battles. Guess what? In Sikhi, we have gone through all of that as well. And this is what you see in the passing of the Gaddi, in the enthronement, in the words of Guru Granth Sahib. Actually, it uses these words. In Guru Granth Sahib, it says that Guru Nanak Sahib passed on the Guruship, passed on the throne. There was a Chadoa, which means canopy was raised. So those are all symbolisms saying very emphatically and very declaratively, nothing in secret, that here I is among the most qualified ones, this one is now becoming the perfect one. And when Guru Nanak did that, for example, he said, from now onwards, I am not the Guru. Guru Nanak was alive for several months when Guru Angad became the Guru. So this mm-hmm. idea of succession, this idea of excellence becoming perfection, for a given duration and not just for the ones who so far have been calling that they are the six, but the all other ones who are seeking to become a sick. So this mm-hmm. becomes the authority period without any adjective in front because that only word in front is guru and guru for us is perfection. Mm-hmm. And I think something I'm interested in is in this like in this process is this process of passing down the guruship. I think sometimes it can evade us and we simplify how it might be undertaken or how it comes about. I'm interested in how this succession or lineage was decided, if that's if decided is even like a correct term to use. Um, so how was guruship determined? How is this? Um, maybe movement from all of these qualified six to the perfection. How is, yeah, I'm wondering what that process looked like. So this is one part where there is not as much clear indication to us. I want to start with that premise. So there are two major schools of thoughts on this. One believed that this was already a divine play and everything is unfolding in front of us. The other believes that all gurus uh, tested the best available ones, and they picked the one who was unquestionably following the command, the hukum. And they both have evidences, historical or narratives available to us. So I don't want to get caught up in either one. Well, everything happens in hukum. So the first one actually works from that angle. And everything in hukum we know requires effort as well at individual level. So we know there were efforts by the ones who became the guru as well. There were efforts by many. Some were making efforts. This is the part I do want to differentiate. And I say there is agreement on this part that the ones who were making effort to become the guru never became the guru. 
the ones who were followers and they became unquestionable followers of the command of the hukum they we see very clearly becoming the guru so the ones who whether somebody was a sibling whether somebody was genealogical or what we say biological or whether they became outside of the families whether they came outside of even the sikh fold whether all of that is being you can see it from first through 10th all of those elements uh, rich poor from the family outside of the family within the family a good one a bad one and an okay one all of that is going on and i think that's life so we can try to understand from that angle that what is being unfolded in front of us is actually quite vismadik with the ultimate feelings you know the sahidiya gurbani where something which only can be experienced and cognitively we are trying to make sense of it right now but it is what we saw we saw some amazing descriptions of who actually became the guru and we have a very good explanations of that for several gurus within guru granth sahib and then the up to sixth one in pai gurdas's writing who is the original theologian who lived in the company of the four gurus and wrote about the six and the complete description by pai nandlal goya who was a court poet of guru gobind singh maharaj and i highly highly recommend that one because that one tells us the grandeur of the guru our questions might be why this caste why this clan you know those because that's what we are interested in most that's that's our ecosystem right now the ecosystem which pai nandlal goya presents is a very grand one mm-hmm. it is beyond all these complexes it is really about how do you see things in the history of world religions how do you see things in the history of the universe how do you see things in beauty in radiance and i think those are the questions early seekers are not able to have and our aspiration is to be let's go to that level and then see things because the trivial knowledge is then become something less i'm not saying they're not important we want to know everything about our gurus but this how the guruships got decided how they got passed who became qualified i think the larger vision from guru granth sahib and its explanation for each guru by nandalal goya are remarkably well written and i invite all the seekers to look into them mm-hmm. i think a question that has been on my mind is maybe on other people's minds and really fits into that ecosystem of the contemporary context that we live within um is yeah maybe something i didn't want to ask because i felt like i hadn't done my readings but it's around the gender presentation of the gurus mm-hmm. um whether individually we believe it or not i think the popular narrative right now around sikhi is that it's a faith that strives for gender equity so i think a, a reasonable question to then jump into is why was guruship or gurugadi never passed on to a woman hmm. oh it's a very fair question you know we are inquisitive minds and we uh, if if there is a declaration of a kuvankar as being ajuni which means the one who is not gendered as a male or female then this is a very fair question and this comes from you know this deductive stuff this kind of conversations we are having as well why not a woman why was it passed to a woman honest answer is nobody knows even i have had these conversations with uh, the number one feminist sikh author dr nikhil nandar kaur singh as well and she has written about it in her books in her phd dissertation as well as in other essays the honest answer is we really don't know that said i think what we need 
the, the second best thing we can do is create uh, share with us historicity of the space, space we are talking about you know what was happening between 1469 and 1708 mm. because that's the period where the gurgaddis are being passed right and what we do know about that is just to put it in context uh, in the south asian world uh, women were considered below the shudras below the untouchables they were not even passed of the caste system so just think about that for a second so even declaring that women are equal and uh, that ikkovankar is not a man that in itself was a big deal second historical thing we know is what we call west right now we don't realize i mean america is still struggling to figure out when can it have its first women president and we are in 2021 right now right so human tendencies and the way our conception of divinity was in global world traditions it did not allow women any space if anything forget even the space it was actually keeping them as subhuman and completely you know how we talk about racism colorism well sexism has and continues to be one of the biggest problems in the world so the first thing as gurus uh, it could be because of the acceptance i don't know these are conjecturings now but what i am saying is if you look at it in the historical context uh, that's one way for us to see it, was it for the viability i mean those are the questions i have been asked i don't know but there is an element of that historically would there have been acceptance probably not because we are still isn't look how we are we are still people like we are still fighting on the ideas of panch pyare you know to allow women to be included and many vehemently deny that you know i've been taken to task on that issue since mid 1990s when we included panchpyaras in the women so the point is there is a human problem there is a historicity pro, uh, issue and the, the last thing i will offer is this and uh, what we must understand is guru nanak is very much a man guru nanak is very much born in this on this earth through a mother's womb he married a woman he had a sister who was a woman and he had two sons he didn't have a daughter but other gurus did what i'm trying to say is he very much lived in the human experience here remember the idea of the guru for us it actually always has been shabad so just if we say that he was the one who was the authority to describe the shabad the guru even today is the shabad so who has the authority to describe so they were the ones who had the authorities to continue talking about the shabad the shabad which is countering the idea that women are not equal so i think for 10 generations when it gets established we see the representation of khalsa historically and within the khalsa women are included so those are some historical ways to look at it but nobody for sure knows why but we do know the 10 who did get passed on the guruship they all were male hmm. i think that's helpful in the historicizing i think i'm I'm still I I still want to parse this question out more but I think that the historicity thinking about someone you know looking back like 200 years from now looking back at our contemporary context as you shared um gender equity sexism is still is still an issue um so that yeah the historicizing is very helpful um so before maybe we move on to the authority talking about the grant I'm wondering um I think we spoke about it a little bit but I'm wondering what does guruship or gargadi look like in in other traditions is this something that's particular to the sikh context 
Uh, no, I mean, it, it, uh, uh, Guru Nanak himself has, when he had conversations with Sheikh Ibrahim, he was what they call the Gaddi Nasheen, the marker of the Gaddi of the Baba Free tradition. You know, even today, if you go to uh, Nizamuddin uh, of the Nizamuddin Aliya outside New Delhi, uh, there is a guy who sits there on that Gaddi, who is occupier of that Gaddi. Uh, and politically, we know instead of monarchical system, in most places they have died, although they still exist where people like to salute uh, kings and queens. We have our own representations of now globally, you know, from prime ministers to chancellors to presidents, right? So those are the Gaddis. They're the seats of authority. Where yes. what is the fine? Some seats of authority are ceremonial. Some seats of authority are very practical that they are the sole decision makers. So Gaddis are very much part of the contemporary phenomena. In fact, uh, Saimi Amir, you know, when I visit his dargah, uh, and I've had conversations with the current occupier of that seat, Saimi Amir being Guru Arjun's contemporary and a great friend from a Sufi Islamic tradition. So there is an occupier of that Gaddi even today. The question which this should be raising for us is, then who are the Gaddi machines or who are the gurus for the Sikhs? And I think that's where we're heading into. But the point is, the seats of authority matter, you know, whether it is Shankaracharya from Hindu tradition, there are four of them and they sit on the Gaddi. I visited one um, in uh, Bodh Gaya, you know, where the Buddhists, uh, where Buddha had his uh, nirvana, there's a city, and they set up a, the uh, Hindu from a Shankaracharya system, they had set up a seat of authority to counter that there. So when gurus are setting up these cities, think about that. They're becoming seats of authorities. This is where the takht eventually comes. This is where the akal takht eventually comes. They're seats of authorities. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, the wider the wider definition of what a Gurgadi or a seat of authority is and then specifying it within the Sikh context um, allows us to understand the term better and it, yeah, its occupation within the Sikh faith. And we're kind of moving into like who is the current occupier of the of the Gaddi. Um, the third G is something that we're thinking about is is Grant. Uh, I think I see this term in various ways. I see it the Guru Granth Sahib, of course, the Adi Granth. Um, I, yeah, I don't think that's like, it's a term that I've um, had like gone deep dived into. So uh, to start a conversation, I'm just wondering what is a Granth? Sure. So the Granth word itself just means anthology. Hmm. It means something like a collected words, uh, works. So it's, uh, it's not literally, it does mean book. So, uh, we need to understand these things and not get worked up about it. For six, it is not just a books and we'll get into it. But the Granth word itself, there are Granths which exist in other traditions. It just means anthology, collected works, and something which is a collection of, if there are volumes, it's a collection of those, you know, things of that nature. It's a collection of compositions, whether it's poetic, whether it's legal, whether it's prose, whatever the collection may be of. So Granth itself just means anthology. Mm-hmm. So in my readings, I often see Guru Granth Sai referred to as the Adi Granth, or that's how I understand it when I read a text, or I, I see the two of them being used interchangeably. However, we know they're not the same. I'm wondering, what are the two texts and how do they differ? Sure. So the two terms you're using, those are the two standardized terms. We need to mm-hmm. understand that there are other 
grants, recensions, we like to call them, versions available, some of them authorized, some unauthorized. It gets very academic and there are people who have studied this and there are different theories as to what happened. But the larger understanding is Ad, Ad meaning the first. There was a first collection and that collection was done by Guru Arjan Sahib. The scribe was Pai Gurdas and it includes everything which Guru Arjan Sahib compiled, curated, uh, edited in the true sense of the word, not in terms of changing the words, and organize all of those things. Today, those are the words we will use. Just compile and edit won't cut it because we have a very different understanding of it. Because remember, there are uh, the poets of the time, the religious people of the time, the Hindus, the Muslims, the Sufis, the low caste, the high caste, the Brahmans, the Shudras, uh, people who worked as cobbler, people who worked at butchers, and people who worked at pundits. Think about all the complexities and multiple languages coming together, then a script being utilized to accommodate all that, checking all of those accuracies, organizing them into a musical tradition, applying the folk tunes to it. That's what Ad Granth is. That's what Guru Arjan Sahib did. He was a master planner. I don't even know which word to use. The only thing I can say is words like we would use today are compiler, curator, organizer, publisher. Publisher needs to be brought in there. He's actually also the one who's figuring out which ink needs to be used and what paper needs to be used. So there is no one word which can cover all that, but all of that got put together. That was called Adgrat, which included Bani's of or compositions of uh, until then the five gurus uh, and uh, first through five, because that's Guru Arjan's period. And it had Bani's of generally accepted view as 11 parts, which are bars. 3, 6, uh, Baba Sundars, Baba Satta, and Baba Balwan, and 15 Pagats of uh, Indic traditions, which generally belong to the larger conglomerate of Hindu and Islamic traditions. So that's and from different regions of South Asia. Then when Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj created the second standard recension, that included the Banis of Guru Teg Bahadur Sahib. That's the only difference between the two. There are other academic things. There are other things, you know, in terms of, there are few debates which will always happen, but from a wisdom perspective, from the larger voluminous perspective, the only difference between the two is the, the second recension called Damdami Veed because it was uh, recited at Damdama Sahib and the first one is called Kartarpuri Veed, not because it was recited at Kartarpur, because it is in the possessions of, it's a family personal possessions with the Sodis of Kartarpur today. So that's the only difference. The Ad Granth is how the Shabad was collected and passed on as the Gaddis passed on, right? It's like the presidential book gets passed on, but in the families, in your wills and assets gets passed on. Guru Arjan Sahib wrote it very beautifully. He says, I am passing on for the world, a gift to the world, that has been given to me and now it's openly being revealed. So whatever Guru Nanak had and collected went to Guru Angad and these are, this is the only real asset and the next one to Guru Amar Das, Guru Ram Das and Guru Arjan and by the time it was handed all the way to Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj, he included the Bani of Guru Tegh Bahadur Sahib and at some point gave it Guru Gaddi, which was two days before he left this earth at Hazur Sahib and that version is called Guru Granth. So the Granth was the anthology, 
Ad means the first volume of it or the first version of it. And when it became Guru Granth, it means now this is the authoritative text. There are many texts, but this became the authoritative text. And six lovingly add the word Sahib to it because we recognize that as being the only sovereign. So when we lovingly add the term Sahib in, uh, after somebody's name or title, it implies that they are the sovereignists. Hmm. So you've already hit upon my next question a little bit about the passing down of the guruship to the Guru Granth Sahib and also the Bans, which we will also get to. Um, yeah, maybe we can tease that out a little bit more. Why and how did the eternal co-guruship come about to being passed down to the, the Granth and the Panth? Here I'm interested a little bit in also the historical context in this in this uh, maybe change in passing down. Uh, let me, that's, that's a great question. And let me present it a little bit differently here. Let's go back to the idea of the Guru. Hmm. The Guru is Shabbat. Shabbat has always been there. People were copywriting these things. That was part of the problem of what Guru Nanak saw. And this is what you saw in what we now call organized religions, right? So what happened from the time of Guru Nanak is Shabbat exists. Shabbat existed from the beginning of time and it always exists. But then we need who are enlighteners and they did their own collections of Shabbas and this is how religious texts have come about. Or some of them call it revelations. So when Guru Nanak Sahib came, he says, here is the Shabbat. Now, what is in Sikhi Shabbat? We have to explain that a little bit before I can answer that Koguruship idea. Shabbat for us is free of mythological haze. Shabbat for us is not regionalism. Shabbat for us is equally applicable to not just the planet Earth. It would be for the universe. That's how it's presented. So it is not for a particular group of people, a particular profession of people, or particular race of people, of particular gender identities. So all of the isms which we have now, the Shabbat which Guru Nanak is invoking is all about Ik. And this is where Ikkuankar was his first declaration. The one who gave the Shabbat is the physical authority. Shabbat is the spiritual authority. So at the time of Guru Nanak, you have Shabbat. He's articulating the Shabbat at his time from Ikkuankar through Guru Prasad and then several Banis. And he's the one who's interpreting it as well for the people who are interested in it. Same thing continues Guru Angar. Shabbat is handed down because not everyone is able to experience Shabbat. Now they're taking forms of a pothi. Pothi is a word which means some of the writings are written in now. You know what we generally call gutka now. That's where the term came from. Pothi could be small, pothi could be large. But in Guru Granth Sahib, Guru Arjun wrote, pothi parmesar ka thang. That for us, pothi is where we will discover the supreme being. Because world was very interested in supreme being. He's like, yeah, you can die and discover it. You can go to a particular pilgrimage and discover it. But we will discover it here. The wisdom within the Shabbat. That's the exact line in Guru Granth Sahib. So, you know, basically the Shabbat is being collected. Collected experience, the personal, intimate experience of the divine personalities as Guru saw them. And that is getting collected from Pothis to the larger Pothis to the multiple Pothis. And guess what? When this is happening, many of them are creating their own versions and throwing it in there. Remember, when the guruship is being passed, many are not getting it. They're creating their own version. This happens all the time. You know, this is where controversies have started. They started from Guru Nanak onward. So the ones who didn't get the guruship, some of them actually went with the state and created alternative texts. So by the time Guru Arjun's period came, he's like, okay, we understand it. Now it's getting very complicated. 
we might say today, how many people can you go to to explain which one is the authentic one? So they created an authentic one. And that was called the Adhgra. Mm -hmm. Similarly, all this continues. So in each period, in the Guru period of the physical 10 Gurus, Shabad is getting from tangible Shabad, which exists, intangible, which existed in a tangible form from Pothi to Adhgranth to Guru Granth. And the interpreters of that with the emphatic authority saying, this is the real one, don't accept any other one. Because every other one is personal thing. It's a lineage thing. This is a state co-opted thing or even a state collaborated thing. Mm. This is very important to understand because you're facing the same issues even today. So when the guruship is given first to the Khalsa, because Guru, remember there's always a body. Now the body get, is getting democratized. So Khalsa is that. Khalsa is given the authority that whoever Khalsa says is the authentic source, only that will be accepted. Khalsa is the seat of authority. So Khalsa becomes the next after Guru Gobind Singh and the next after Guru Gobind Singh includes, you know, of the 30 million Sikhs today, regardless of whether they speak Punjabi or not, regardless of whether they live in Punjab or not, regardless of whatever these differentiations we have created, if they are committed to the Shabbat, not just internally, but externally, in the, all the varieties we do things, because, you know, when Guruship is passed, there is symbolism too, because it carries a meaning. You know, there is Chandova, there is Kripan, all of that is written. And then things get added as the ceremonies are getting democratized. Mm -hmm. So from 1699 to now, we have these initiation ceremonies that they are getting democratized too. So Khalsa becomes the seat of authority, the one who will interpret the Granth as well. And Khalsa will decide that this Granth matters the most. This is why the word Guru came. It's Guru for the collective leadership of the Sikhs. We decided... We want to maintain this as our guru. For all times, Guru Gobind Singh says, at minimum, consider this is my hukum. Sab sikhan ko hukum hai, guru mm. We will always have more texts. They always existed from Guru Nanak onward. And there is no, absolutely, we should not come up with this thing that we should not read the text. We should read all the texts. I mean, I'm always looking at at least 17 texts when I'm trying to figure out what happened in history. And I'm also reading now outside of those texts which have been developed since then. I'm reading non-Sikh texts all the time as well, right? Because that's part of knowledges of general things. When you're looking for Shabbat's knowledge, the ultimate authority, why we are here, what Guru Nanak said was the first thing, the wisdom which is applicable to everyone, that is in Guru Granth Sahib. So that's the co-guruship, co if may I may call it. Mm -hmm. the, the Shabbat's most tangible form Today is Guru Granth Sahib, and Guru Nanak's most tangible form today is the Guru Khalsa Pan. That's why it is not just the Khalsa, the word Guru got added in front of the Granth and in front of the Pan. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've already answered this question, but I'm wondering what role explicitly like, does the Panth play in this co-guruship where the Granth and the Panth are both are both engaged? I Yeah, that's, I think. It's, it's, it's the role what the physical Gurus played. Mm -hmm. to maintain the ultimate authority of the Guru's Shabbat, right? So because Guru said that's the biggest treasure. So what did they do? Well, first thing they did was they maintained their job was to, I'm calling it job because at our level I'm looking in 2021, what did it mean? It'll mean our job is to keep the authentic source alive, to keep the authentic source accessible, to keep the authentic source continuously interpreted in the languages, in the traditions which people today understand. That's the work. That's the minimum work, by the way. 
In addition to that, what did gurus do? We got to continue with the economic sovereignty, the political sovereignty, taking stands on where people are being persecuted, creating self-reliances through economic systems. This is where 18th century six did all of this. This is why they were being eliminated. Earlier, they would target the assassination of a single guru, like in the case of Guru Arjun Sahib, like in the case of Guru Tegh Bahadur Sahib, like in the attempt of Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj himself. So now, those who don't like the Sikh idea, universal idea of infinite wisdom in the Shabal, guess what they do? They target the representatives within the Khalsa who are trying to continue to do the same mission. Mm-hmm. So the, the same work, the work is same. Our work was when Guru Nanak said, and eventually got institutionalized, Ujjad jao, to the ones who carry this wisdom with them. We are now Ujjade hoy, but we are struggling with the wisdom, the Shabal, and we are definitely struggling with the responsibility of if we are part of the Khalsa. So those who are initiated, those who have said, this is what I plan to do. Mm-hmm. It cannot just be ceremonious, which means you will be targeted by the state and its agencies. It has always been like that. We have forgotten this. Every guru was a target. Every guru went six of the 10 gurus because they were protecting the Shabbat so well because they were maintaining this pristine element without any adulteration. Because we, you know, there were people, uh, including Guru's relatives, who were not able to do it, and the state celebrated them, right? They created uh, alternative seats for them. By the time Guru Tegh Bahadur came, there were many who were claiming to be the Guru. You know the Sakhis. So that's what we are going through now. The seekers, when they become Shabad-oriented for self-development, and they take they enter the public life through initiation that we publicly take responsibility to all of these things. That's where the authority of the Panth and the Granth is seen in practice. Because there are 30 million Sikhs, because our governance systems are broken, because our self-experience of the divine is not as powerful, we have glimpses of it, we are struggling in both areas. I think... Yeah, I have, I have many follow-up questions, but I'm going to leave it for everyone to, yeah, kind of chew on that and make their own conclusions from what's been shared. Um, I do see some questions in the chat box and in the q and of As I kind of wrap up all of my curiosities and questions, I'm wondering, or I invite people to uh, post their questions in the chat box. Um, yes, I do see some, but um, we'll get to those in, yeah, the next couple of minutes. Um, so... Again, I think maybe this question was answered, and I understand, of course, when you're, I think it's important to engage with a multitude of texts. I think it really speaks to yeah, even the milieu within which some of these things were occurring. It really gives you context and historicity. Um, and I'm wondering, in my experience, I think I've seen folks invoke other texts, apart from like the Adi Granth or the Guru Granth Sahib. Um, primarily, I see engagement with the Rahid Mariada um, in an authoritative way, but I'm curious, what role do these other texts play, particularly in relationship to authority? Yeah, when it comes to authority, uh, this is not just my opinion. I invoked it earlier. Uh, the attributed text and lines to Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj are very clear. And even in our nicknames, it's very clear that every other Bani matters, but Bani, which is not Satgur, is incomplete. In fact, uh, this morning, uh, I happened to be doing nitne with you know, a few fellow travelers, 
and you know we were doing an unsub fully as well and you know that that line when it came and i was thinking oh man it's so clear why do we keep fighting about that it says satguru bina hor kacchi hai bani it doesn't say that hor bani is worthless it says kacchi kacchi is that it's immature it's underdeveloped it is not fully baked it is not perfect so that's how we need to look at all of the texts you know whether we read a historical text from the i mean gurus had poets that's also a text banis there are attributed to gurus we can either keep fighting about it or look at it as being another historical text but because we don't have authenticated claims we can either keep fighting about it or we can go into say you know what there is agreement that guru granth sahib is definitely a guru it is an eternal guru satguru this is our eternal guru not the ones who are running around people like me sometimes start to act like gurus and some actually are putting titles like that we discussed that earlier so if somebody has become an expert in gurbani they try to act like a guru titles like yogis are being used title like sadguru are being used title like they're all invoking that that fascination among seekers that somehow they know best or the most or they are next in line no in sikhi the next in line is only the khalsa hmm. you might be individually an excellent sikh but remember there could be few excellent sikhs just like there were 8 to 10 excellent sikhs as pai gurdas has written at the time of gurunanak as well there was baba budda ji as well but there was only pai lana who became guru angad so today in khalsa tradition multiply that when you have 30 million it's going to be confusing <laughs> and they're going to be not 30 or 50 people who are acting like they are the alternative to guru by creating sophisticated lectures or webinars or courses charging nothing to charging $5000 giving private lessons private naam uh, naam uh, combined with music naam combined with yoga you name it and they got it it's a marketplace of ideas as nietzsche would say right and this is how you know i'm just invoking nietzsche a little bit because when he was critiquing what had become of christianity in europe at that time 150 years ago that's when he said god is dead this is what gurunanak sahib has been saying you know you have created such an abstraction of these things especially the religious ones the ones who act like experts and we are back to it again so the this idea of other texts is kacha i'm coming back to it so whether you like personally certain texts or not keep it personal collectively the answer is same in front of guru granth sahib ji everything else is something less so one can debate how much less but it is something less and i think if we can just come to that sort of a larger understanding you know yes i know rahat maryada has other bani so we read it and it should be debated more pantically instead of on youtube channels by people like me who have not even read enough sources on it you know that's not inspiring anyone we were the we are the culture of naam people we are supposed to be inspirational people and if there are problems because realize they have been creating alternatives since guru nanak's period some by the family members by creating that authority and some by the co-opting of the state similar things are currently going on they should be dealt in a organized way in a meaningful way in a particular forums but for larger public sadguru bina hor kachi hai bani other than the eternal guru for us guru granth sahib that's where the shabad is everything else is kachi 
everything else is something less it is not ripened it is not perfect um i'm yeah i'm not going to comment on that i would let other folks yeah take that in um what i'm understanding is that maybe these fights and arguments these questions that we have the answers are available um so i would yeah, welcome folks to also uh, embark upon that journey. And kind of closing our conversation before we head to questions, um, within a month of this conversation is the first Prakash and Gurkadi Divas of Guru Granth Sahib. Um, what does this mean? Uh, and what is its significance for us today? Well, uh, uh, the significance is this, not just for Sikhs, it's the Guru, collectively. Uh, it still might be ceremoniously, so please bear with me. As a seeker, have you made it your guru? Prakash means illumination. So you start with that. Remember Prakash, Guru Nanak was doing with Shabads, with couple of Shabads, six were working. Eventually, Pothi, Guru uh, Arjun Sahib made it Ad Granth. So the Prakash literally means illumination, but it was ceremoniously also opened at Sri Amarsar Sahib, right? Which means anyone can come. And this is why everyone does go to even if they don't realize, that's why they're going there. What made it special was not just the architecture, not that there are 100,000 people being fed there. Those are the institutional developments born out of the paradigm of the what's in Guru Granth Sahib. Hmm. That's the thing. It alters the way we think. So, you know, even in 84, when the poem was written 10 days after that by Ahsan Abzal Randhawa, he writes that. He says, why are people going there to bow to Harmandar Sahib in Amritsar? He says, because why are they doing that? Because this Prakash happened there. And that changed the Hindus of the time, the Sikhs of the time, the Muslims of the time, the householders of the time, the renunciates of the time, the political heads of the time. They had a serious pause moment. Some of them became more than seekers, other became adversaries. That's just how it is. So the Prakash matters because am I getting, am I learning something from Guru Granth Sahib? Because it is openly, without a copyright, without secrecy, given as a gift to the humanity in the words of Guru Arjun Sahib. Mm -hmm. And then Guru part comes at some point in our life, even physically we are being shown that Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj decided that, you know what, there is a lot of confusion coming. People are still going after, you know, experts, as we call them today. He's like, okay, if you really need to have authenticated account, here is the Guru now. So the Khalsa does not have an option. For Khalsa, the only Guru is Guru Granth Sahib. For others, you can still pick and choose whatever you need to do. But Khalsa doesn't have an option. The collective Sikh psyche doesn't have an option. So Khalsa is an organization. Khalsa is the organized part of Sikhi. But Khalsa also, remember, historically is used in the Guru Govind Singh Maharaj period. When we refer to the collective Sikh nation, it's also called Khalsa Jiyo. So the collective Sikh psyche, this is the Guru. And we must, if this is the Guru, then if we can't listen to anything else and we have aspiration to listen fully to this, let's start listening to it in some capacity. So it starts with the idea of learning and eventually saying, this is the most mature thought for me. This is the perfect thought for us. And let's interpret this in our designs, in our arts, in our governance, in our war strategies, all of that. That's what it means. It's creating a thought production. It's creating a culture based on 
the wisdom and experiences in Guru Granth Sahib. And I guess I'm wondering for those who want to engage with the wisdom, I think sometimes, as you've said, six are all over the world. Um, so that also means that sometimes the the wisdom isn't always accessible to us because we we can't read it. We don't, it's not a language that is understandable to us or we can't yeah, engage with it. So how can both, I guess, six and non-six access its wisdom given the language barriers and not just the language barriers. I think when we look at someone who like studies Sikhi in the academic sense, I think even going to translations, it obscures so much. Um, the translations are done through the lens of the translator. So of course, it's going to it's going to differ. They're done through maybe patriarchal patriarchal or colonial contexts. So within all of this, um, yeah, how do we how do we access this wisdom? Well, Malvinder Kaur, we access like any other thing we are trying to access. So there are two elements to it. Let's for a second think about it in a non-six sense. If I have chosen that part of my route is that I want to become an engineer. I will have to figure out the coding for engineering. Hmm. There is the way you learn about engineering. At the same time, you don't start with that. You start with people who you believe have learned about it and you take their classes. <laughs> you go learn from them. You start at a very common sense, right? Because that's how engineering got inspired. You can apply this to medicine. You can apply this to education. You can apply this to art, music, sports, and all fields. So that's what we need to be doing. There are two things which have to happen that those who are talking about the wisdom, they better get better at it. You gotta use people's language. This is where I'm gonna invoke Professor Puran Singh. He says, the history of Sikh people is still a sealed book because we are carrying it in our bosoms. What he means is that what our ability and our experiences, what, it, what the Guru Granth, what the Shabbat has done for us, we are not able to articulate it yet. Because And he says, he says it will. When people living next to the Ganges, when people living next to Mississippi, to the Thames, and, you know, he mentions few rivers, is poetically presenting, you got to speak in people's languages, those who are experiencing that. And that's what happened, by the way, in the early period. In early period, you know, those secondary texts we are talking about, they might be written in Gurmukhi script, but they're not in Punjabi only. Many of them are only Persian. Many, uh, the language, many of them are only Braj. So similarly, many will be now in English, but those who are writing, those who are explaining, those who are talking about it, those who are, they must have an element of experience. And at the same time, the seeker then also needs to decide if this is what the idea is, if this is a larger paradigm, and I want to know more about it, then you gotta go learn the language. So the organizations need to really focus on, uh, and you know, we, we are making a small effort ourselves on this to actually present something in people's languages. And then the seekers need to say that, am I at that level that I want to experience and learn the original freshness of this? Then you start learning the script and you learn more about it, but it starts from the Gurmukhi script. Yeah, I think you've painted a, yeah, uh, the processes that folks can undergo uh, in accessing, accessing this wisdom. I would, yeah, again, before we close out, I would invite folks to ask questions. I know there is one question in the Q&A, so kind of hopping back to 
Like we've got the imperfection. It's kind of, it's two questions. So uh, Jesse is wondering if um, maybe the familial passing down of the guruship, what I guess what contemporarily we would call nepotism, what role does that play? Um, in the passing down of the guruship, and then secondly, the writing of the Shabads. So if um, the Shabad is ultimately the guru and the Shabad speaks against sexism, um, why were the Shabads not written by women either? Right. So the first part, let's start with there. The first question, look, the, this is very simple. In guru period, we have established the grandeur of the guru is where we were after. We talked about two approaches of understanding. Nepotism played no role in it. Nepotism was practiced by several. They never got the guruship. The struggle is when it has been democratized. The struggle is in 18th century, we were still in the vicinity of the ideas, but then we are away from it because we are the ones who practice nepotisms in all of it. It's not, don't think it's only the ones who end up as panjipiaras or end up at takts. Look at our own organizations. If it's a student one, it's your local Gurdwara one. We are not getting training to get out of the nepotism. The Shabbat we are not experiencing ourselves. If enough of us experience it, and then instead of renouncing ourselves from the world, from the messiness, the bloodiness, the politics of it, and actually participate in it, we will be able to deal with the ones who are dominating the Panthic affairs, the Sikh affairs, and we will be able to get rid of nepotism. It's not a secret. We see it at the highest levels. But what I'm saying is we also see it at the local levels. So let's work on it. Let's start experiencing the Shabbat. It, Shabbat, I was having this discussion with one of the commentators, Jasleen, actually. I'm like, it's very funny. You know, people, we enjoy Shabbats right now because maybe we are only enjoying the tune of it or the singer of it. If we really understood it, it will actually bother us quite a bit. It'll move us to do something about it. When I say do something about it, it'll move me to change my behavior instead of just having that knowledge and articulation. And secondly, it'll move me to then work towards collective behavior change as a byproduct of a personal behavior change. So that's on the first part. There is nepotism in contemporary times. There was no nepotism accepted, although it existed and the passing of the guruship during the 10 guru period. Second part is where it is much more muddy, right? I mean, it's a why question. I don't know. I started with that. I don't know uh, why there were, whether women wrote or submitted, but I do want to share a few things from historical angle. There are explanations given that there were people who submitted their writings, their compositions. We know at least four from Lahore poets and they all four were men including one possibly LGBTQIA community one, okay? We also know that first Punjabi poet on the record is Pilu, which was only 100 plus years ago. So I'm not saying there were not women, women writers or the women poets. Obviously, there were. There always were and there always will be. But the recordings of those even in Punjabi literature are only 150 years old. So that's one thing. And secondly... We do know there were other people who submitted their writings, even had dialogue with the Guru Arjan Saab. No historical account is available. And I want to take this back to why, from a conjecturing angle, because remember the conditions of women. I mean, one rose like a Sundari in Guru Gobind Singh period. 
but one rose like a sundari was one among millions. So the larger condition was horrible. And the Ikkuvankar paradigm, which created the culture of Naam, actually at least created another Sundari, another Punjab core. So those are, while I understand that, why do we have to only mention those names? Because those are the ones which we are, which we are historically aware of. I'm sure there were more. The Guru's wives, the Guru's siblings were part of that as well. In many cases, they were part of the active participants as well. But in literature, we don't have those writings. They're not available even outside of Sikhi. Uh, those are probably some of the reasons why we don't see it. But what we do know very much, and what we do know, we must practice it more hard than. I think we need to demand much more in the last 300 years, is the, and, and including now, is the you know, women's suffrage movement in America even was early 20th century. But women were included in the Khalsa in 1699. We got a real head start. Somewhere, our head start got reversed. Then it got revived again. Then it got reversed again, which means there are people working to counter it, right? Just like they were countering the gurus in their physical forms during the 10 manifestations. Well, guess what? Where we are very clear, let's hit hard there first. Let's get that personal experience of the Shabad first. And then in the representation of the Khalsa, without the identity or gender politics, let's create this mandate that the Shabbat experience is available to all and let's get those people involved in representations of the Khalsa. That's where we should be hitting hard from a gender angle. Thank you, Harinder Singh. I don't think that there are any other questions. Um, as always, there will be a recording of this available. I know I'll want to go back and review um, some things. I know we went over a lot today, so um, yeah, happy to um, send that to the email addresses that you registered for this webinar with. Um, but I'm wondering, Herndler Singh, if there's anything that you wanted to add, anything that we missed? Well, I might have a little bit of fun with the title because I know we had discussion on it. What is this three G's business? Because G is for gangster in a hip hop world, but for us, G is for the guru. And, you know, I also use the term 12G. And if you're interested, I'll just explain because 12 is 10, the physical gurus, one Shabbat becoming Guru Granth and one becoming Guru Panth. So we actually are like a, you know, the world is in 3Gs and 5Gs. And if you're an aerospace guy and look at all the space stuff happening these days, people talk about they're experiencing, you know, 5Gs now, which many can't. Well, what I'm going to say, many of us can't even experience 3G right now. We are struggling, right? Uh, imagine the force which gets created from this Ikkuankar, that from one force to this 12G force. And it is complex, but it is very nuanced, but it is very powerful. And this is how this 3Gs and 12Gs come together from this idea of one. Uh, the G is the same, the manifestations coming together. And I like to sort of, you can even look at this when Guru Gobind Singh was asked, how many forms do you have? What does this word guru mean? He had also answered that in the words of Pai Nandalal, where he says, Teen roop hai ko, nirgun sargun shabat. That there is an intangible form, there's a tangible form, and there's a shabat form. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are the, uh, these, these sayings, these writings, they include a vast experience of not just a Sikh experience from 1469, they're incorporating with them the larger cultural understandings of the word guru in them but raising them to newer heights. Like nobody knew 
that Guru could even be a Granth. The world hadn't seen that. People say, you know, world uh, is, we are the worshippers of the world in somatic traditions. But we carry it on our head. We believe it's that powerful. That's why we carry it on our head. It's not a just a ritual thing. There is a psyche accepts this as being a very big thing for us because this wisdom, we really paid for it. Guru Arjun Sahib was assassinated for it, tortured to death for it. Think about that for a second. The religious world and the political world could not handle it. His own brother couldn't handle it. These are serious conversations. That's what Guru Granth Sahib is. It is this charter, it is this manifesto, which is way beyond regular scriptural understandings. And similarly, uh, the representatives of this, uh, uh, the Granth, you know, Gurgaddi of the Guru is the Khalsa. That that level of understanding of uh, our responsibility needs to come into play. Uh, as we grow, you know, we go through uh, learning mock trials and the mock governance. And even if I'm not initiated, say this is what Sahaj 36 used to be, before we became Khalsa, they would be learning these responsibilities. And some will be able to then do it. Demanding everyone will be able to do never happens. So I think if we can personally create this aspiration to bring this Shabad and Naam for altering our own behaviors, and then collectively those who are doing it creates facilitations, articulations, and spaces in your own organizations to do it, um, uh, we will be able to revive it again uh, to how it was intended or as we understand how it was intended. That sounds like a call to action to me. Um, I also am seeing two more questions. We do have about 15 minutes left. So they're saying if, um, yeah, we can take these questions if you think we have capacity. Did we want to go ahead and answer this? Oh, if, you, if you have a question, sure. Yes, so there's two more questions in the chat. Um, okay. One is asking for a recommendation, maybe a little about um, a structured course to help them on their sick journey. So more of a yeah, logistics, if there's a course you can recommend. And then the second question is, we see the gurus as perfect. Do you think that they made mistakes and what can we learn from those mistakes? And they particularly invoke the Manji system. Invoke the Manji system, okay. So on the first one, of course there are courses. Guys, you know, we live in the age of information. The problem today is not that we don't have enough access to the information, the problem is, what information are you looking for? Uh, there is good, bad, and ugly on everything. So do a little bit of work. Of course, uh, Research Institute offers some. Other people are offering some. It depends on what you're looking for. So if you want to see what we are offering, uh, go to sikri.org. There's a courses area, and you can see what's available. And if any of them speaks to you, great, take it. Otherwise, pick up uh, a textbook or a recommended book to self-learn. Or otherwise, look for other teachers facilitators, not gurus, uh, uh, is according as I see it, uh, to learn a particular skill, to learn or invoke a particular feeling. Yes, we can go learn it from anywhere, but we do offer courses. I think in the sick world, we were the first ones to offer and we continue to build on it, but our courses are very Bani focused. Uh, we believe that is what is needed the most. So whatever we need to learn about Bani, which uh, they continue to offer those. Um, now, second question, you know, that I understand the, in, I think I understand the intent of that question. Uh, it's two part. First is Guru Angad 
before he became Guru Angad was Pai Lana. Guru Amar Das, before he became Guru Ardas, was Baba Amru. The only individual as a physical guru of the 10 gurus where there is not a consensus, but there is a large consensus, is on Guru Nanak. When was he the guru? So I'm not going to get into that debate. That's a scholarly debate. But sometimes some people believe it was 1469. Others believe 1499. That's the only difference. Okay. Or anything in between. But outside of that, every other person was not born a guru. So what was happening? Of course, they were doing other things. Of course, they were making mistakes as well. Of course, they had aspirations, but they were falling. This is why they relate so well to our condition, our human condition. They talk about confusions in spirituality, how to deal with this idea of what we now call work-life balance. They don't use these words, but they talk about it. Shall I leave everything? Shall I stay in the family? I am choosing to do this, but this is what the Brahman is telling me. This is what the Kazi, this is what the Mullah, this is what the Yogi, this is what the Jainis, this is what the Bodhis, this is what the Dasis are saying, this is what the Odasis are saying. They're all expert or religious orders of the time and some of them continue till today. So those uh, journeys in their pre-Guruship period, if I may call that, they're dealing with all these things. They do not have the answers. In fact, this is one of the struggles of life they are articulating. Uh, you know, for example, they worship many gods and goddesses in some cases. In case of uh, Guru Baba Amruji, he actually was a very rich man. He had a, some following as well. But he had not fundamentally figured out who's my anchor, who's my guru. Guru is anchor for us, that perfect anchor, where you actually have illumination, not just the expert knowledge of something, but you're experiencing now, which is what eliminates uh, our worries and our sorrows in every sense of the word, which is what provides crystal clarity as to what to do in the family as well as in the uh, state affairs of the state. So although nine of the at least 10 gurus went through a pre-gurusha phase, and of course they didn't have perfection then. And so perfection in Sikhi comes in the guru is at the time they are individual. Individually, they were perfect only when they served as a guru. Now, you, how do I apply this to the Khalsa? Well, Khalsa is not one individual. So this is why the perfection in the collective is when enough of us practice excellence. No one individual can. That's why the minimum representation is five. Then you had to do something bigger than that to figure out how to even bring those five together. This is what the world now calls, you know, basically uh, co-leaderships. This is a circular leaderships we call them now. But that was in 1699. Now coming to the Manji system, because what I just described, and Manji system was established by the Guru as a process, and when the people who occupied the Manji, it worked. This is where the women mandate really worked. It was a, it was a system included to create representations of the Guru, for the collections of the Daswan and becomes the state persons or emissaries, where even in Kabul, the emissary was a woman. Mm. But when emissaries, remember when there are more people involved, when it is more than 22, and they, some of them become greedy, yes, corruption enters, and corruption entered because they were not gurus. They were flawed people like you and me. We might be very, very good at something, but we are fully capable of making a terrible mistake any moment. And they did. So when enough of that corruption happened, 
a system was replaced with the Khalsa. Mm. You know, but for five generations, it worked. It started, not five, sorry, eight. It's, it was started by Guru Amar Das Saab. And by the time ninth Guru came, he started to see it. So he started working on alternative plan. Now, how do I take it beyond these 22? How do I take this to the community at large? So he had to come out of the corruption center in Amritsar, yes, and go to Bihar, non-Punjab, the diaspora, and create an alternative plan, and then took that plan and the blueprint to Anandpur Saab and declared the next authority through Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj. So we are not enslaved by tools. That's what I'm saying. The Guru is perfect. Guru's solution is perfect. People who are implementing the solution do become corrupt. So if the tool needs to be replaced, which it needs to be again, because now the diaspora is not just Bihar. Now the diaspora is the globe. And UK, US, and Canada, and Australia, and Kenya's, and Malaysia's, and I'm not even naming many countries, but we got potential of about 200 nations, of which 15 nations have the rest of the 19% population. 80% is in the, in, the, in the Punjab homeland. So we have our work cut out. So Manji system actually worked beautifully. But the corrupt people who otherwise were good people brought it down. So Guru replaced the system and replaced the tool, but it was eight generations later. So can we figure out something for next generation should be our question based on this culture of now and based on the ideas of Shabal. I think, I think that's a great place to end off. I think I'm thinking about this personal and collective change and what that looks like. I think there have been many calls to action throughout, uh, calls to action like calls to interpretation for how you want to understand and engage um, with what's been shared today. So I would welcome everyone to engage in that process in whatever way they want to. Um, I did, I know sometimes it's helpful to have something tangible. So I, there are of course courses available. Um, and as was already shared, it is what you are personally looking for. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but I, had the pleasure of moderating the Love and Justice course last summer um, through the Sick Research Institute, and I would highly recommend it. I'm happy to send you the readings if you send me an email. Um, but yeah, with that, I'll, I'll close this out today. Maninder, if I may add one more thing. Of course. Before you close, I, you know, it just hit me because it's connecting to what we were just talking about. Even the hukum today from uh, Sri Amra Sergio. I was reflecting on it very early this morning, and you know, it had this idea of that we have an idea of who's a widow in this world, right? And I want to apply it personally and collectively to the six. So widow is somebody, or widower is somebody whose spouse dies. And the hukum today was invoking from an angle of sadhan. It's a feminine idea among all of us, among all bees, beings, who is a seeker, who wants to be a devotee. So it, it actually was saying, if my the spouse, which means a koankar, it invoked the word prab and it invoked the word har, never dies, and I believe that I am one with, then is it that I am choosing to be a widower? Which means I am the one who doesn't have a relationship because the spouse always is there. So this really, I'm applying this here in our conversation where we the last conversation was, are we also always going to ask the questions about what ifs of the gurus? Or are we going to at some point say, 
have I even thought about becoming of the Guru? So once you start becoming of the Guru, because the Guru is always present as a Shabbat, right? Similarly, the today's Hukum was saying, the Prabh, the Divine, the Har, the Light is always there, never dies, then maybe I'm choosing to be widowed uh, because that one is not dying, that one is not leaving, I am the one leaving. So in this very interesting take on, uh, we rarely do self-reflections and we are always looking at the other one not being available. But if Shabbat is always available, maybe I need to figure out how to become that Sohagan who is going to enjoy that rather than acting as a separated one, the widowed one. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I think yeah. I, I won't add anything to that. I think it's a, a great way to apply a little bit of what we've been talking about today. Um, yeah, and maybe pause and reflect after after this webinar is over. I think I'll have lots to think about as well. Um, so as always, on behalf of Sikri, thank you to today's lovely panelists for this insightful conversation. I always, yeah, it's so joyful to always be the moderator in this space. I love thinking of the questions, engaging with the work, um, and then hearing how the audience interacts uh, with what's being shared as well. It's always very, um, yeah, very joyful. As always, a recording of this webinar will be available within 24 hours. Um, Sikri continues to host uh, web weekly webinars. Um, so our next webinar will happen next Saturday, October 2nd, where I will be joined by Dr. Anok Singh, Dr. Bhavanjit Gajima, and clinical counselor Balvinder Gill, who will draw on their personal and professional experiences to engage in conversation about what problems with alcohol look like in sick communities, why they occur, common challenges that folks might face when engaging with the healthcare system and how we can harness hope, empathy, and Sikhi when we or those around us are struggling. I would say a very connected conversation um, as are all of our webinars. And lastly, don't forget to tune into the SickCast, a podcast produced by Sikri, where we explore the various issues and events affecting Sikhs worldwide. Thank you for joining in today. Today's webinar will be ending now. Vaigurjika Khalsa. Vaigurjika You are listening to Sick Cast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.